This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, how screen time may double your recovery time after concussion. Tell that to your adolescent child addicted to Fortnite. And more on concussion, how exercise affects recovery, and we'll look at the trend to modified infant formulas and what effect they've had on academic performance when those babies grow up. And the extent to which Omicron may or may not have escaped immunity generated by past variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. A large study on this from South Africa has been released as a yet-to-be-peer-reviewed preprint. The researchers looked at immune escape as reflected by reinfection rates in people who've been infected with the COVID-19 virus in the past year or so. The lead author was Professor Juliet Pulliam, who's director of the South African Centre for Epidemiology, Modelling and Analysis at Stellenbosch University in the Western Cape. Welcome to The Health Report, Professor Pulliam. Hello, nice to be here. What's the thought to be the normal protection from a prior COVID infection? Um, about 85% protection. So um, there was a study that was conducted in healthcare workers in the UK um, during um, early in the pandemic um, that found that they had about an 85% reduced risk of reinfection um, if they had been previously exposed. So it's pretty similar to, say, the Pfizer or Moderna uh, immunizations. Well, the, the Pfizer and Moderna immunizations um, are mo- mostly talked about in terms of their um, their protective effect against severe illness, so hospitalization and death. Their protection against infection is actually a little bit lower than uh, than natural immunity. So, tell us what you did in this study. So, in this study, um, we have been monitoring the reinfection risk um, through time since about January. So, we were, became interested in this during the um, our second wave here in South Africa, which was caused by the beta variant. And um, there were laboratory studies that indicated that there may be some immune escape based on antibody neutralization data. Um, and so we decided to see whether we could see evidence of that at the population level. Um, we did not find any evidence of it in the beta or the delta wave. Um, however, um, in recent weeks, we have started to notice this increasing trend in reinfections. Um, and so we're looking really just at the population level for a signal, um, not detailed quantitative estimates of what level of immune escape might uh, actually be occurring. But you did come up with an increased risk that you found that at least to the end of November, beginning of December, that it's about 2.4 times the risk of reinfection compared to previous variants. Um, so it's actually, that's the, the, the risk relative to primary infection relative to previous waves, which is a very complicated um, calculation and hard to wrap your head around. Um, but it, it basically means that, um, that the reinfection um, risk is higher um, and it's higher relative to its previous relationship to the primary infection rate. Now, one of, one of the things I find interesting in your study, which is what, something you just referred to a moment ago, is that you didn't find much of an increased risk of reinfection with the beta and delta compared to the what they call the ancestral virus or the Wuhan virus. Yet, the laboratory evidence suggested that, uh, for example, with the beta variant, the so-called South African variant, there was vaccine resistance. So does that mean that you can't really go on the laboratory studies? You've got to look at populations to see what really happens with what's called immune escape, as to whether or not the virus is resistant to infection, to antibodies. I think it does highlight the... La- Sorry, I do think it does highlight that the laboratory data are not giving us the full picture. Um, so those data look specifically at antibody um, 
uh, antibody neutralization, basically how well the antibodies bind to the virus and, and keep it from replicating. Um, and there's a lot more to the immune system than that. I'm not an immunologist, and I certainly don't understand all of the things that go on with the immune system, but I think we, we really need better um, correlates of protection and, and un a better understanding of um, how to measure in vitro, in, in the laboratory, what's actually going to happen in a person. Because that's what we're all waiting for in some senses, is that they're saying, well, we're going to be doing these studies of uh, convalescent sera for people who've re recovered from COVID-19 and tested against Omicron. Mm -hmm. Uh, from your experience, that might not tell you very much. And in the real world, for the first time since the pandemic started, you are actually finding significant reinfection rates. That's right. I think um, they certainly are working on those neutralization assays. Um, but I, my understanding is that they're also working on um, T-cell assays, which is another aspect of the immune system um, that, that maybe wasn't looked at as, um, as well for the previous variants. But I think there are... Uh, a broader range of laboratory studies that are being undertaken this time around. And were there any vaccinated people in your sample? Because it was about 2.7 million people that were in your sample going back to 2020. Sure. So there certainly were vaccinated people in the sample. Um, most of our data uh, that we were looking at for, for over the course of the year. So most of those, uh, most of that time period, we had very low vaccination rates, but, but more recently we um, do have higher vaccination rates. Um, and unfortunately, we can't at the individual level un uh, link the data so that we know which individuals are vaccinated. So we really can't look at vaccine efficacy at all um, or even how it's interacting with the reinfection risk at this time. So there are anecdotes around the world of people getting infected who have been either double vaccinated or even triple vaccinated and, get, and still getting mm -hmm. the virus. Is there any way of extrapolating what you've found to how the vaccine might behave? I don't really think so. But like I said, I'm not an immunologist, so I'm not really the best person to ask about that. How does this play out in epidemic modelling? Because some people are saying, well, maybe this virus isn't that contagious, but it's this escape that counts. In other words, the South African population and maybe other populations looks vulnerable to the virus because it's escaped immunity. Therefore, there's lots of people that can infect. And that's the important variable. Now, you're a modeller. What does it tell you about the modelling of the growth of Omicron? Absolutely. That's what we're working on now. So, um, so I think that it... It doesn't tell us anything very definitive, but it allows us to sort of map out what the plausible range of, of immune, immune escape versus increased transmissibility that might be occurring. Um, and what we're finding so far is that it looks like probably there is it is a little bit more transmissible than Delta, um, and it does have some amount of immune escape, but we can't quite quantify those things. So um, unfortunately, I, I was really hopeful that, that that we might be seeing a sign that it was um, that it was actually less transmissible than Delta, but I don't, I, I'm, I'm no longer convinced of that. Um, and I think the other thing to really keep in mind is that South Africa is very different from many populations in the world, particularly um, Australia, um, because we've had these three really large COVID waves and we have a relatively low vaccination rate um, compared to many other countries. So we don't really know how it's going to play out. It's possible um, that, that, you know, we were able to detect a signal because we have such high levels of, of previous infection um, and, and maybe that signal won't be as, as uh, detectable elsewhere. 
um, it's possible that um, that the things that we learn about severity um, over the next couple of weeks in South Africa will not be applicable, applicable elsewhere because of this difference in, um, in the population profiles. Well, we'll keep a close eye on it. Thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you. Professor Juliet Pulliam is Director of the South African Centre for Epidemiology, Modelling and Analysis at Stellenbosch University in the Western Cape. And this is Aaron's Health Report. Concussion has become a major issue over the last few years, particularly in contact sport, with guidelines becoming far more prevalent, usually about taking the player off the field and benching them for a prescribed period of time. Obviously, people want to get back on their feet as soon as possible, but that can't be at the expense of brain damage. One factor in recovery which has been much discussed but grossly under-researched is whether someone who's concussed, especially an adolescent, should be allowed to use the screens on their phone, computer or television. Well, now there's been a randomised trial conducted in a children's emergency department in Massachusetts. The lead researcher was Dr Ted McNow. Thank you for the interest in this study. Why did you think that screens would have an effect on concussion? It's been thought of for a long time that screen time is bad for concussion, but no one's ever studied it. And doctors, frankly, gave discrepant recommendations as far as how much, if any, screen time those who suffer concussion could have. It was a question that every patient and parent had who came to the emergency department with concussion. And I wanted to see if, in fact, screens were harmful in recovering from concussions. The idea being that the brain's got to rest and you're over-exercising it by using screens. The thought is that the photic stimulation, the bright flashing lights and maybe the thinking around screens is harmful for concussion. But even though my study shows that screens are harmful for concussion, it's still up for debate why that might be true. So how did you do your study? So we took patients aged 12 to 25 who presented to the emergency department within 24 hours of having a concussion. And we asked them a series of questions having to do with risk factors for having a prolonged concussion, how they sustained their concussion, and how bad their symptoms were in the emergency department. And then the computer did a virtual coin flip and assigned half of them to completely abstain from screens for 48 hours. And the other half was allowed to use screens for 48 hours as tolerated. We didn't distinguish between what type of screen. So everything from televisions to iPads to phones was included in what we called screen time. And what sort of outcomes were you looking for? So our primary outcome was how long it took until recovery from concussion. And we gave all the patients a daily post-concussive symptom score. And we said that the day you reach post-concussive symptom score of three or less, that was the day that you recovered from your concussion. And what we found is that those who abstained from screens recovered in three and a half days compared to those that were permitted screen time in the first 48 hours. It took them eight days to recover. So a difference of four and a half days. That's huge. It is. And the trend was consistent across all different PCSS thresholds for recovery. Now, while you controlled for screen time, the kid who's on his phone or her phone a lot or sitting at the laptop playing Fortnite might be doing other stuff as well. Although when you've seen them playing Fortnite, there actually isn't much other stuff they're doing. But anyway, did you look at what other behaviours were associated with kids who used screens? Well, we told all of the patients to abstain from work, schoolwork and exercise, which is the standard practice, standard of care in terms of the first 40 hours of concussion. So we hope that none of the participants were doing that. We did inquire about exercise during the first 48 hours, and there was no difference between the groups. However, I wouldn't say that we got a good handle on what was substituting the screen time in the group that abstained. You know, what we found is that those who we said could use screens in the first 48 hours had a median screen time of 630 minutes over the first three days. So 
that 10 and a half hours versus those who we asked to abstain was 130 minutes, so just over two hours. What's the likelihood that you're right about this? You know, as far as the patients we got, they were randomly assigned to both groups. And so even though we weren't enrolling all patients that came in, it was probably a representative sample. It's true that those who were assigned to abstain from screen time may have misinformed on the survey as far as how much screen time they're actually using. However, it's real life. You know, in real life, doctors are going to advise some patients to use screens and some patients to not use screens. Yeah, and kids are going to lie about how much time they're on screens. Right. And so, you know, to me, the important intervention is what we say and then how they do what they do with what we say. And so in some ways, it's better because it's real life. You know, patients are going to do what they're going to do. And maybe those who ended up using screens self-selected because they felt better and that can represent real life. So given the world doesn't come to an end, if a 15-year-old stops playing Fortnite for a few days, is this strong enough, do you think, to make recommendations that you just don't use screens at all for the first few days after a concussion? I think the study conclusively says to not use screens for the first 48 hours. To me, that intervention isn't harmful and have incorporated that into my practice. It leaves open a lot of questions. Are screens still harmful after those first 48 hours? And it, it doesn't get to are specific types of screens worse or video games worse than watching easy television? Is focusing your eyes on the small text of a phone worse than playing a simple game on the iPad? And so it, it doesn't get to that. And then the other question that leaves open is, we still don't know what to tell kids that they can do during the first 48 hours. We say you need to abstain from work, schoolwork, sports, exercise, take it easy, and now no screens. And so I don't exactly know what to tell kids to do. Reading, we think is bad because you really need to focus your eyes and concentrate. And we think cognitive rest is important. At the moment, I'm sort of stuck with a book on tape or having a conversation with your parents or maybe some light chores. But that's the question is what is maybe not even harmful, but beneficial in these first 48 hours for recovery. And I think there's a lot to study in that first 48 hours. Hopefully there's some budding researchers listening and we can figure out what's best to alter the trajectory of concussions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Dr. Ted McNair is at the Memorial Children's Medical Centre at the University of Massachusetts. And staying with concussion, another research group has been looking at the last thing you probably feel like doing after you've been concussed is exercising. Currently, the Australian advice is to rest after concussion. But when Dr Sue Reid and colleagues at the Australian Catholic University pulled together previous evidence, they found that people had better results if they started moderate intensity exercise within two days of their concussion. Sue's here to talk about her findings. Hi, Sue. Hi, Keegan. Thank you for having me on. So how much did this moderate exercise in the first 48 hours make a difference? Um, so um, what we found from these 12 studies was that after 48 hours rest, it's recommended that the concussed person could do 20 minutes a day of moderate intensity aerobic exercise. So that can be on a stationary bike, a treadmill, walking with steps, jogging. But the important thing is that the exercise has to be sub-threshold. So at an intensity that doesn't increase their symptoms. And those, the main symptoms are headache, dizziness, neck pain, fogginess. So, for example, if they had a headache that's 4 out of 10 on that 0 to 10 scale, they can exercise. But if it goes up 2 or more to, say, 6 out of 10, they have to stop. And what was the difference between the group that did that and the ones that, studied, that did the standard advice? Okay, so those that did the sub-threshold aerobic exercise had a decrease in symptoms um, and that was evident in people that were of acute presentation and those that had persistent symptoms. 
So we found the subthreshold aerobic exercise didn't increase the symptom scores, so it didn't make it worse in both the acute cases and those with ongoing concussion. And so those people were back to sport within a couple of weeks. What do we know about the longer-term effects, though? Um, So it, it didn't make a big difference with aerobic exercise of getting them back to sport quicker, but it did decrease their symptom scores. But what we found helped with getting them back to sport quicker is that some people have prolonged symptoms. So about 70 to 90% of adults recover in 7 to 10 days. It can take up to 28 days for children and adolescents. So if they've still got symptoms after this time, then they need to be assessed by a physio and identify if they've got any problems with their neck, their balance, the vestibular system, the inner ear, the ocular motor system, their eyes and if any deficits are found with any of those, then they need to have physio uh, to treat that. Right, so, so there's sort of two that, pathways here. Yeah, yeah. So they were the two different findings we found from our systematic review. What do you think is happening inside the body that getting up and getting that heart rate up is helping with uh, concussion recovery? Yeah, so with subthreshold aerobic exercise, they believe that it increases the blood flow to the brain It also regulates the autonomic nervous system. So that's the system involved with mood, alertness, focus, well-being. But it's interesting they also think that there may be some neuronal regeneration. So um, new formation of brain cells and pathways. And that's why they think exercise helps after stroke or whiplash. So this systematic review only actually found 12 studies with a total of about 600 participants. Is this actually enough data to be drawing conclusions from? No, I think we need more randomised control trials with bigger sample sizes because the biggest sample size in this was about 200 people. And then we can do subgroup analysis where we look at age as a factor or male versus female. Um, one of our researchers, Shreya McLeod, she's looking at concussion in female collision sports. So, um, you know, we can look at a lot more things, um, the fit principles, you know, the frequency, intensity, time and type of exercise. So a lot more research needs to be done. But because this was based on um, for exercise, there were seven studies we pulled together it did show this benefit of decreasing symptoms with early aerobic exercise. And we found that it didn't make symptom scores worse in both the acute and persistent concussion. So what are the main takeaways for you, for a parent of a child who's got concussion or a sports club where this has happened to one of their athletes? Okay, so they should do 48 hours rest, but then they need to start just 20 minutes a day of doing aerobic exercise. Um, To work out the intensity, they can use a heart rate monitor, a Fitbit, Apple Watch, and determine the heart rate that they can do that doesn't... uh, If they work out the heart rate that increases their symptoms, then they'd work just under that, about 80 to 90% of that intensity, and do 20 minutes a day. um, And if the symptoms get worse or they can stop, but I would be getting them to start that 48 hours after the concussion rather than prolonged rest. And then if it's not clearing up within the few weeks, getting onto that physiotherapy intervention? 
Yeah, after two weeks for adults, four weeks for children or adolescents, then they need, if they've still got symptoms, only about uh, 10 to 30% of people will still have symptoms, but then they need to go and have that assessed and get these other interventions to get them back to square one. Because we know after one concussion, you're much more likely to get a second concussion. And that might be because people aren't having all these problems like their balance, their vestibular system treated, and they're not getting back to square one before they go out back to their sport. Sue, thanks so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you, Tegan. Bye. Dr Sue Reid is a senior lecturer in musculoskeletal physiotherapy at the Australian Catholic University. We know that in the first few months of a baby's life, the best food is breast milk. It has a range of benefits, including cognitive development. But breastfeeding isn't always possible, and infant formula is a close second in terms of keeping babies healthy. But is it possible to enrich infant formula with ingredients that can help boost that cognitive ability? Different groups have tried adding various supplements to formula, and now a group of researchers in the UK has pulled together these trials trials and compared them to academic performance in later life. A spoiler alert, the verdict is that supplementation didn't seem to make a difference. Mary Futrell was one of the authors on this paper and she joins us now. Hi, Mary. Hello. So when you're dealing with really subtle changes in something like cognitive development, over a pretty long time, it must be hard to get enough data to actually form conclusions. So how did you do it? So we took advantage of the fact that our research group uh, has for many years conducted randomised trials looking at uh, different modifications to infant formulas for both term infants and preterm infants. Uh, We've, as I say, conducted a number of trials dating back to the 1980s. But the problem is that uh, usually in these trials, the outcome, that is the cognitive outcomes, have been measured in infancy. Um, And usually you don't have funding to follow the trials later into life. And even when we have attempted to do this, you typically get a lot of loss to follow up. So uh, you end up with a a small and slightly biased sample. And that doesn't really enable you to answer the question of whether the modification to the formula has actually made a difference to the cognitive outcome. So what was different here was that we we had the opportunity to work with uh, some of our colleagues who work in data linkage and in education. And we were able to link the participants from seven of our trials from the 1990s to routinely collected education data. So essentially uh, the GCSE exams, which children in the UK take at the age of 16, we were able to link those results to the formula modifications to see uh, in pretty much a complete follow-up, which we wouldn't actually ever obtain in real life if we asked the participants to actually come and attend a study centre. So we minimised the attrition using this data linkage, which was very effective, and therefore we were able to get quite complete results uh, relating to these different modifications. And I sort of stole in your thunder a bit, but what was your key finding? Uh, well, as you said, we found that uh, none of the modifications that we examined actually uh, improved the the academic uh, output of the children. So our main outcome was their maths GCSE result and then we had a secondary outcome which was their English result at age 16. And then we also looked at their maths and English results uh, at the end of primary school, so around the age of 11. Um, And in no case did the the modification to the formula um, produce a benefit. Um, In fact, we found in uh, one of our secondary outcomes that the addition of long-chain fatty acids to the formulas, if anything, was associated with a slightly lower score in English and maths at age 11, although that wasn't seen 
uh, for the outcomes at age 16. What might be going on there? Specifically with regard to the long-chain fatty acids? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we, we don't know. All I can say is that those findings are consistent uh, with some other data, limited data that we have on long-term follow-up from long-chain fatty acids. Um, I mean, it's inconclusive as to whether this is actually a, a, a sort of detrimental effect. As I said, it wasn't there at age 16 in our primary outcome. Um, but it's certainly something that needs uh, further consideration. Uh, I think it's also important to say that there are lots of different ways of adding these long-chain fatty acids to infant formulas. It's not as simple as just getting a long-chain fatty acid out of a bottle and putting it in the formula. There are lots of different uh, types of supplementation. And we just, uh, our trials just looked at uh, one particular type. So we probably need further data from other LC-PUFA supplementation strategies as well and different doses and things. So it's quite complicated. So, I mean, infant formula have a lot of different uh, ingredients in them. The ones that you were looking at particularly were nutrient-enriched formula, this long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acid. It's a real mouthful. Uh, and then a high <laughs> iron formula. Why were these the three kind of added ingredients that you were looking at? I, th I think because um, historically those were the areas of infant formula design or infant formula use that were thought to potentially have the most impact, likely to have the most impact on cognitive development. So that's why those trials were set up in the 1990s. So there was, in the 1990s, there was a lot of interest in whether by adding long-chain fatty acids to a formula, you would improve outcome, basically because they are present in breast milk and they didn't used to be present in formulas. Um, and so there was a lot of interest in adding them. Um, but I think as, as an aside, this sort of illustrates that it, just because something is in breast milk, it's not that you can't assume that just by putting it in a formula, it's going to work in the same way as it does in breast milk, which, as you said in your introduction, is a very sort of complicated uh, biological fluid. The sort of matrix is very different to, to infant formula. So I think we've probably learned that. Uh, with regard to iron, um, I should perhaps highlight that the um, study that we looked at was actually concerning follow-on formulas, so the formulas For that are used uh, beyond six months of age when infant iron requirements are very high. So there's been a lot of interest in... It's a, it's a period where infants are at risk of iron deficiency, which we know is not good for the brain. And so there's been a lot of interest about whether putting higher amounts of iron would actually help infant, uh, infant cognitive development and subsequent uh, brain development as well. So we were comparing two different levels of iron supplementation in, in follow-on formulas. Um, and our results suggested that the higher amounts of iron didn't benefit long-term outcome more than the sort of standard amounts of iron. So it's not saying that iron is not important, it is. It's just it's a question of trying to get the right level. Right. So what are the implications of this study? Are, are there implications for parents or for regulators around what should be going into infant formula? So I, I would say that I don't think our findings have implications for parents in terms of choosing formulas because the formula composition is, is regulated. I mean, it's different in different parts of the world, but it's regulated anyway. So I don't think it has direct implications for parents. What I, I think it's important is that the uh, results will be very useful for scientific bodies and regulators who are making assessments of what the composition of infant formulas or follow-on formulas should be. Um, they would never act on just to one piece of evidence because there's lots of things to take into account when you're deciding what should be in a formula. For example, you've got to take account of the nutritional requirements of the infant, the composition of breast milk, short-term growth, those sorts of things. But 
the sort of health outcomes are important as well. And so our data will be very useful because they're really the longest term cognitive data that are currently available. And as I said at the beginning, we have very complete follow-up because of using this quite new data linkage approach so that you don't um, have the normal loss to follow-up, which Mm. all of the uh, previous trials have experienced when they've done follow-up. Absolutely. Mary, thanks you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Mary Futrell is Professor of Paediatric Nutrition at the University College London, Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. Yeah, wouldn't it be lovely if a supplement did improve academic performance, but, you know, it's just got to get down to the basics. It's really fraught, isn't it, with people just want to do the best thing for their babies, and I, I hope that this is illuminating to people rather than confusing them more. Yeah, and you've got now these toddler formulas being touted to parents rather than just giving children an ordinary diet. Um, I think there's lots of problems in this industry. Well, if you've got questions about infant formula or anything else, you can ask us by emailing healthreport at abc.net.au and it is time for the mailbag. Norman, I've got some questions for you today. I'll start with this one from Trudy, who wants to know the true reason for cramps. Trudy's a runner and she suffers cramps when sitting in bed in her toes and hamstrings. There are so many old wives' tales regarding the causes and treatments. Well, the reason there are so many old wives' tales regarding causes and treatments is that nobody has got a clue. Um, (laughs) End of of segment. So there are various causes of cramps. So pregnant women get cramps really commonly. One in three, maybe one in two, it becomes more common during pregnancy. It's been blamed on low magnesium, low calcium. Um, Not convincingly that that is the cause. Um, Magnesium supplementation doesn't work in, in cramps. People with chronic disease, chronic diseases do have a very high level of, uh, of cramps and it can be quite, uh, quite problematic. Um, so people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, people with diabetes, it's thought to be related in people with diabetes to nerve damage and that would make sense. And for example, motor neuron disease, you get cramps, people get cramps quite a lot. So again, that's, there's nerve damage going on there. Um, Trudy has got it after exercise and exercise, post-exercise cramps is actually actually quite common. Pre-exercise stretching does not work. People say, well, you've just got to be well hydrated. It's not convincingly related to electrolytes. In other words, low sodium, low calcium, low magnesium after exercise. It's probably just a stress associated thing. And then there are people who get it in bed at night. The estimates of how many people get cramps in bed at night range from about 6% to 1 in 3 people aged over 60. Again, not convincingly uh, proven to be associated with anything in particular. By the way, heat, um, exercising in the heat is associated with a higher incidence of cramps. Now, that could be uh, dehydration attached to that. But you just said dehydration isn't a factor. So, like, how do we make sense of this? Um, It's very hard to make sense of cramps. It, It really is. The main thing with cramps is, is there anything else going on in your body at the time? If you're otherwise healthy and you're getting cramps, then you've just got common or garden cramps. But if you've got if you've got other problems like numbness and tingling, weight loss, um, weakness, that does not go along with normal cramps. So cramps associated with other problems do need to get checked out by by your doctor because it could be a sign that something going on that that's underlying the problem, and. In that case, perhaps tr- finding a chronic condition and treating it better might help the cramps. It's a, re- it's a really good question and um, really common problem and hopelessly under-researched. 
So no to the magnesium, no to the calcium supplements. Yep. Water's not going to help, but I mean, you should be well hydrated for other reasons. You should be well hydrated for other reasons. That's right. And if you get it, then you know, do what we all do is really stretch and deep massage of the muscle is thought to help. But again, no evidence <laughs> to support <laughs> that either. But I can, as a sufferer of cramps, I can say that uh, you know, when I do the stretch, it does seem to help. But you know, the real problem is not screaming and waking up your partner. <laughs> Well, a different question from Jim, who's 71, and he has a question about colon cancer. He had a colonoscopy, had two polyps removed and was advised to return after three years, which was this year. He went back and had three polyps removed and has been advised to return again in three years. And he said, he's done some research. He says, it looks like polyps and colon cancer indicates that the cancer cell are embedded in the colon wall, but the polyps seem to be on the surface. And really the question is, how does polyp removal prevent colon cancer? So polyps, and not all polyps, by the way, end up as cancerous. There are particular polyps that have a higher risk. So essentially polyps are what's called hyper, an effect of hyperplasia. In other words, the cells in the wall of the, of the bowel are uh, multiplying faster than they should and they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow and this frond-like thing grows uh, out of the surface of the bowel. But the growth element is actually, you're right, in the, in, the, in the wall of the colon itself. And what happens when you've got this hyperplasia and you've got cells that are actually multiplying at a higher rate than they should, it's a relatively small step for them to be triggered into cancer. And so one of the predictors of cancer when you go in and do a colonoscopy is how many polyps you've got. So there are some people who've got large numbers of polyps. It's called polyposis coli, and that's a, usually a genetic disorder. They've got very high risk of, of developing cancer because they've got so many polyps. But it's good when you find polyps because you can have them removed, and it does mean that you need repeat colonoscopies to check that others haven't developed. Um, what there is evidence for in terms of preventing future polyps once you've already got them is low-dose aspirin, but I wouldn't start that yourself. Just have a chat with your GP or your colonoscopist, your surgeon or your gastroenterologist. So is the polyp just a symptom or does removing it actually cut off the thing that's growing that could turn into cancer? Yeah, removing it does remove the area of what's called hyperplastic growth. So it does effectively at that one spot, prevent cancer. Not, it's not 100%, but it, to a very high level, prevent, prevents cancer occurring in that particular spot. You could still get cancer appearing somewhere else, but very rare, if ever, that does, it, does it appear without a polyp being there first. Right. Just one more thing about polyps is that polyps bleed. And that's the basis of your uh, bowel cancer screening program when you're over 50, when you check your poo for blood, is that polyps bleed and picking up that blood is, the, is a chance you've got to find a polyp and have it removed. So be uh, vigilant and get that bowel screening test if you are eligible for it. Yep. A question from Emma saying, she's curious to know more about the biological mechanism by which LDL cholesterol contributes to heart disease risk, please. We do hear about good and bad cholesterol. Norman, why do people who have a higher LDL cholesterol, why do they find themselves at higher risk of heart disease? Well, it would surprise you to know that the, um, the research on this, while there's been huge amounts of research, there's still a lot that's unknown. But essentially what LDL does 
uh, low-density lipoprotein, and it's not one substance. It's actually a mixture of cholesterols, which tend to be have small particle size. And LDL takes cholesterol into the wall of the artery. HDL, high-density lipoprotein, takes cholesterol out. That's why it's called the good form of cholesterol. The paradox here, before I get to LDL, is that when people have tried to artificially raise HDL, because you think that would be a good treatment for uh, atherosclerosis, which I'll come to in a moment, um, in fact, uh, when they've given either HDL infusions or drugs which raise HDL, it's actually increased coronary risk. So there's something funny going on with HDL, but in nature... HDL is really good at pulling cholesterol out. And natural means of raising HDL, such as exercise, stopping smoking, maybe a little bit of wine, and also reducing your abdominal fat, all raise HDL in a safe way. LDL. So LDL, small particle size. Now, you may have heard of another blood fat called triglyceride, and that's commonly measured and should be measured when you're having your blood fats done. When triglycerides are high, the particle size of LDL goes low. What happens here is the lower the particle size, the more likely it is to get inside the wall of your artery. Now, that's made some cardiologists say, oh, we've got to measure the particle size. There's actually no evidence that measuring the particle size makes makes a lot of difference. But anyway, LDL gets through the wall of the artery. And then what happens is that if you are somebody who is you know, living an unhealthy lifestyle. You've got too much weight on, not enough exercise, too much saturated fat in your diet. You've probably got uh, an overactive immune system, a higher level of what's called inflammation. It's the same inflammation that you get with a rash on your skin or when a wound's healing, but it starts to trigger abnormally. And then what happens when LDL gets inside the wall of the artery is that this inflammation interacts with the LDL. And essentially, you get what's called uh, oxidative stress. In other words, the, you get free radicals and LDL oxidizes the same way as iron oxidizes and causes rust when it's exposed to oxygen. So the LDL oxidizes and, uh, and interacts with the immune system. And that process causes fibrosis, scarring and atherosclerosis and narrowing of the artery. And not only that, the LDL now as part of a composite process of destruction of the wall or damage to the wall causes the surface of the artery to be uh, fragile. And if it breaks open, then a clot can occur within the atherosclerosis plaque, which is, is that's what that, that lump is called, and can suddenly block the artery and that's if that's in a coronary artery it's a heart attack if it's an artery in the neck then what happens is the clot's thrown off goes into your brain and causes a stroke so i hope i've helped to um uh, explain Scare that. the living daylights out of us so the key with ldl is at, and this goes back to a, a health report of a couple of weeks ago which is what why emma is probably asking it which is that it's good to know when you're young what your LDL is, when I say young, 20s and 30s. I think actually the, the Heart Foundation says even, bef- even in your early 20s, perhaps, know what your LDL is. Not that you can go on drugs, but you know to change your lifestyle. And the lower you can get your LDL, the better. 
So there is a normal value, which I always forget what it is. But in fact, if you can drive your LDL really low, it's a good thing to do. Nobody's found any danger from actually getting your LDL down to quite low levels. Now, if you are somebody who's got another risk factor, which is that you've had a heart attack or angina or you've had a stent or you've had a temporary stroke um, or you've got diabetes, you're at very high risk of a future event. And in such people, you want to get your LDL down to as low as you can get, really very low levels. And that will help um, to even reverse some of the atherosclerosis and certainly prevent more building up in the future. According to the Better Health Victoria website, um, the recommended cholesterol level should be no higher than 5.5 millimoles per litre. Mm -hmm. And if you've got other cardiovascular risk factors like smoking and high blood pressure, it should be less than two. And more, about half of all adult Australians have blood cholesterol above five. So it's yep. a, it's a so really big the, problem here in Australia. That's the total cholesterol, which is a combination of HDL and LDL. And it's the LDL element that should be you know, very low indeed. You mentioned before, sort of in passing, that people get their blood fats checked. How often should people be getting that test done? Nobody really knows the right answer to that question, but um, it's certainly not annually unless you're at risk and under treatment. And by the way, an isolated high cholesterol that's only modestly raised is not necessarily a reason to have your cholesterol treated with a drug. The important thing is as you get older, there's not much point when you're younger because these so-called absolute risk scores don't work when you're younger, but they do when you're older, say over 50. And what they do is they take into account all your risk factors and treat you as a complete person. So your blood pressure, your blood fats, um, whether you smoke, some take into account your family history. Some take into account your waist circumference and other things as well. They try and make it as easy as possible. And they calculate your risk of a heart attack or stroke over the next five or 10 years. And that's much better uh, estimate of your risk rather than an isolated, slightly raised cholesterol. Because cardiac risk factors work in packs. They work together. I talk about this in my recent book. Um, and, and you've actually got to reduce all your risk factors together, your blood pressure, your waist circumference and your LDL. The exception here is if you've got a very high total cholesterol and that would suggest that you may have a genetic problem there and that needs to be treated quite actively. And that's often, but not always, in people who've got a family history of people dying young of coronary heart disease or getting their first heart attack young. So complicated story. It's important to know your total risk not, and not get obsessed with single numbers unless the single numbers are very high. So if you've got questions about your own risk, you should talk to your doctor about that. But if you have general questions about health, you should email us healthreport at abc.net.au and we, Norman, will do our best to answer them for you. We shall. We'll see you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.